Hello and welcome to Undercommon Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. And to quote a wise man, it's only when a mosquito lands on your crotch do you suddenly learn there's a way to solve a problem without violence. I'm Ian Woodworth, and I'm joined by my co-host James Daly, and today we are going to be talking about non-combat encounters, because you have to have something to do between spells. Generally, yeah. Something other than running and positioning for another spell. Now you've lost me. (laughs) You know, if you want to play the murder hobo game where you just walk through and kill everything, that's fine. But most people aren't looking for that in their D&D. They're looking for... Something with at least a little bit of fluff in the middle between combats. Because, let's face it, combat in D&D 5e is slow, and you spend a lot of time waiting for your turn. I think that's kind of actually a good benchmark for the maturity of a player. Because when most people sit down for their first game, they are expecting to kind of murder hobo through everything. And as they learn to play more and as they've experienced the game more, I think they start to value those non-combat scenarios a bit more. I guess I've just been really lucky in the people that I've had at my table. I mean, I've had lots of new players at my table over the years, and I tend to actually have some pretty good luck with having people not go guns a-blazing as their first option. That's good. And again, that tends to deal with the maturity of the player as well. Right, and I have found that when it comes to non-combat stuff, for the players at the table, if it's their first time playing, their age determines what the best way to prompt them happens to be. I found that younger players, you can just tell them, you can do anything, and they'll come up with something. But if you have an older player, and I've had a few players in their 40s, 50s, 60s sitting down to play their first game of D&D, you tell them, you can do anything, and they get that deer-in-the-headlights look. And so it helps to give them some options of, you can do this, or you can do this, or you can do this in this particular situation. Just some ideas to get the juices flowing. And almost always they end up coming up with something completely different to what anything I tell them is. And I'm like, yeah, you can run with that. Yeah, that's always a good thing. Initially, like I said, if you give a younger player a blank slate, they tend to be a bit more flexible with that. They tend to use their imagination more, particularly through school ages. That's just something they do, considering that's part of their school. They'll get writing prompts or here, come up with an idea. So that's part of their everyday thing is trying to create or come up with something. And as we turn into adults and get more into workplaces, our rules tend to be more rigid. So we don't get to exercise that as much. So particularly adults, as we get older, we tend to get a little rusty with that. But once, you know, we kind of break through that and release those chains. Yeah, definitely. I've seen some adults come up with some stellar ideas because they've got more experience. So they've got more things to draw from. All right. So getting into non-combat encounters, why do you want to have non-combat encounters at your table? Aside from breaking up the monotony of combat, non-combat encounters give them an opportunity to use their proficiencies and their skills. So, I mean, you've got that huge table, you know, you've got that big old part of your character sheet that's donated to not smashing thing. They put that there for a reason. Right. And it's not just because they wanted to fill up the character sheet because it looked very bare with just your smashy stats, regardless of what James is going to tell you. But I like my smashy stats. Oh, I like my smashy stats too, but... 
And really, when I sit down and think about the games I've played, the combat scenarios are always fun, but the times where the games become memorable are those moments in between. It's what you're doing on your rest. It's how you're interacting with the town or the village. If there's going to be a reoccurring NPC, if there's going to be some sort of running joke that's going to pick up with the group, it's normally, not always, but normally in those non-combat scenarios. And another thing that it does is it encourages role-playing at the table. Because there's only so much role-playing that you can do whenever you're in combat. Role-playing in combat tends to be, you know, you're throwing out one-liners or you're barking out commands or you're describing how you're attacking or casting a spell. It's very action-oriented. Whereas when you're outside of combat, you're able to role-play in a more abstract manner, I think. It slows down the pace and it gives you time to go into more detail on what exactly it is that your character is doing. Yeah, so like Ian was saying, if you're in combat and you're, you know, you're role-playing, then you're just smashing face or you're, you know, you're acting brave or cowardly or however your character acts in that stressful situation. But in those in-between, when you're camping or in your town or village, you know, was your character the son of a baker? And so now he loves fresh baked goods. And so he's going to go check out and talk to the baker. Are they crafty? Are they a practical joker? Are they diplomatic? Are they going to try to help people in the community? Are they, you know, generally benevolent or malevolent? And these are a lot of aspects of a character. Again, like we're talking about, combat is very single-faced, where when you're role-playing, things can become very multifaceted. Right. And another thing tying into what we're going on about with encouraging roleplay at the table is it enables you as the DM to progress story arcs. It gives you something that isn't a fight to progress the story. Because if you think about real life, most of the encounters, quote unquote, that you run into in your everyday life don't involve you punching anybody. I should hope. Stories in my RPGs? That's just absurd. I mean, you could be an MMA fighter, in which case most of your encounters are punching people in the face. But for most of us, for the vast majority of us, we don't answer most of our problems with violence. But you know what? Even if that character is an MMA fighter and you take any given MMA fight nowadays, that fight's going to be two or three minutes, eight minutes tops. And there's like a month of hype that goes on before any kind of big fight. So, I mean, even in that case, there's a lot of non-combat that could be done, even if you wanted to use that as an example. So let's go ahead and break this down a little bit and talk about some different types of non-combat encounters. The first one, the one that most readily comes to mind for me, is the social encounter. Is you are coming up to somebody, you're talking to them, you're engaging with them in conversation, you're trying to get something from them, they're trying to get something from you. Some sort of social interaction. And again, that's going to be most of your mad about town type stuff. Are you dealing with merchants? Are you dealing with innskeepers? Any kind of traveling caravans, that kind of thing. So the things that you're going to be doing here, you know, these are going to be encounters that are allowing your players to talk their way through problems. So you're going to be using a lot of your charisma-based skills, your persuasion and deception and intimidation. You're going And the ever-famous role selection. And that, yeah. That's just a general charisma skill, I think. Anymore, yeah. I don't know. I would almost say that depending on how you're trying to do it, it would be... Probably a persuasion role. Probably, yeah. Again, depending on how you're trying to do it. But you know, that is the old tabletop trope. Yeah, but it also allows for the use of certain non-combat spells. Things like Charm Person and Suggestion and Zone of Truth and creative uses of things like Invisibility. 
a lot of your ritual spells that you're going to prep for your party to, things like Identify or Circle of Protection or things like that, are also going to come in this scenario as well. Yes, you can still do a lot of spell casting when you're not smashing faces. And this is a great way to actually save some of your spell slots if you have certain ritual spells like Identify, like Detect Magic, taking some time and just casting it as a ritual. And then that's giving 10 minutes for the rest of the party to actually have some social interaction either amongst themselves or with an NPC and to advance the storyline and get into trouble. Now, I think one of the lesser thought of social encounters is probably one of my favorites. My introduction to RPGs and eventually into tabletop gaming was mostly through a computer game like Baldur's Gate or things like that. And even in those stories, the player characters conversed amongst themselves and there was role play and skill checks even between the characters, whether it was like a joke or whether maybe someone was trying to hide a secret or trying to learn more about the characters. And again, this also encourages role play within the party. So depending on how advanced or how used to role playing the party is, this might require some prompting from the DM. But this almost always ends well. And by and large, I find that whenever you have intraparty relationship, intraparty communication, most of the time, I won't call for any roles on any of that because they are a party and they are either revealing or hiding as much as they feel comfortable with. And so I'm not going to typically say if somebody asks If party member A asks party member B about their past and party member B tells them something that I know as the DM is a lie because I've read their background, I'm not going to tell party member A, roll an insight check to see if you believe them. No, but the party member may always ask, do I think they're telling the truth or do I trust them? And again, that's generally early on in the party as well. Or if there's something like if someone's picked up a cursed sword and they start acting kind of weird. And again, that requires a certain amount of insight from the actual table player, but again, can go a long way. So there are times where you will need those charisma investigation roles, even within your party. Yeah, investigation and insight are both really big social encounter skills as well, on top of the charisma ones. Another fun non-combat check to do is if the player thinks to plan ahead and they're like in a town or a village or whatever in the off time, they might choose to use their investigate skill to see if they can plan an escape route because they know there's going to be combat later. So they can go walking down the street, you know, looking for back alleys or something like that, particularly if they're playing a rogue or a thief. And again, that kind of forethought from a character definitely deserves some sort of reward because they are planning ahead. They're playing as their character. And that is a great use of a non-combat check. Planning for combat. Yeah. So the next category that I'm wanting to talk about is the puzzle or obstacle. Your traps fall into these. Puzzle doors fall into these. If you haven't run a game before, you would be amazed at how much time you can soak up with a simple trap or a simple puzzle. Absolutely, And I will in a bit talk about one of my saltier DM things that I do on occasion because these puzzles, it can be a here, flip the switch and it turns into a 20 minute puzzle. I think the last little puzzle I gave you guys in your last campaign involved a door with a latch on the other side. And I figured someone would notice that there was a latch they had to lift on the other side. And it took them a good 15, 20 minutes to figure that out. Well, I mean, in my defense, the door, as I was picturing it based on your description, did not match what you were actually describing. So there was a little bit of miscommunication there. but And you guys were also shorter, too, because, again, I wasn't initially planning the party to be all minuscule, which was definitely a fun aspect to that. But again, even that, like I said, 
can soak up a lot of time. And I've heard stories about DMs. Their party is going through a dungeon and they come to a fork in the path. And the party spends two hours debating which way to go. And then they finally pick a way and they finally go down it just to find out that it splits around basically a long pillar and it comes back together 30 feet further down. Well, that happens more frequently than you care to admit. Yes. <laughs> so that's one of my things. And I actually like this as a puzzle, particularly, again, the party, any kind of table, everyone's happy there. Most of the time it's a group of friends, which can lead to a lot of side banter and chatting, which really takes things off. And if you only have so much time, you only have so much time. So a fun thing to do on occasion, particularly from a DM and kind of getting everybody back on track is I will give them a trap. I will give them a scenario. And then you pull out like one of those other game timers or set a five minute timer on your phone and saying a timer is going off and you have this much time to solve it. And you press the button. And if they want to sit there and talk about snacks or whatever, that's time because they're working that puzzle in real time. One thing that I really like to do in terms of obstacles, not necessarily puzzles where you actually have to figure out the solution, is to just show them an obstacle and say, okay, here is your obstacle. You figure out how to overcome it. Like you come up, the bridge is out. How do you get across this ravine? And again, that also leads its way into a lot more role playing as well. I mean, it's one of those things of you can send someone with a rope, have them make a run and go and jump across and stretch a rope across. You could find a log to send across. You could go up or down the ravine and see if you can find another place to cross. Any of a number of things and it gives them a chance to expand their creative mind and try and figure out a way to overcome the obstacle without pressure. You know, you don't give them a time crunch. It's just, there's this obstacle. You gotta pass this obstacle in order to continue. Yeah, it's a pure flex of imagination, which I like. One of the funner sessions I had, and I'm pretty sure the DM at the time like completely just flubbed the session or ran out of time and didn't have time to plan anything, but he had the party come up to something in, in order to get a favor or information, forget what the actual scenario was, but we had to run an obstacle course, and that was the session for that thing it was kind of like a ninja warrior or like the old, what was it, Wipeout, the old Japanese game show, but it was an obstacle course, so there was a climbing section and there was swimming and there was jumping and there was an animal handling check and there was no combat in the entire session, but there was a bunch of skill checks for different things to see if you could figure it out or just brute strength things. But like I said, that obstacle course actually was a great idea. It was actually an extremely fun session. And going back to what you said earlier, that was a memorable session without any combat because those are the sorts of things that you're going to remember is, you know, the time that you had to run the obstacle course, not the time that you killed five kobolds. Exactly. So the other form of non-combat I really like to do is tavern games or, you know, kind of mental thinking games. There's all kinds of different things. You're sitting there at a table and you, everyone's got a box full of dice in front of them. And so you can easily take a box game from anywhere, take them from the old uh, Witcher games with like the poker versions. You could do Yahtzee, you could do whatever. I mean, any kind of dice game from anywhere and make the party play some dice games, set it up. Maybe there's a gambler in a pub or something like that, or there's something along those lines that they got to win a prize for it. Another great example of a non-combat encounter, and this is, doesn't even really require skills check, is something called Wizard's Chest. A good example of that is if you've read the old game in Sandman, there's a section where they do something kind of like that, or in Sword in the Stone, where you have Merlin and Mad Madam Mim, and they're changing into characters. So what you'll do is you get the party sitting together, and the first person starts, and he says, I take the shape of, and he's, he polymorphs himself into something. I polymorph myself into a bunny. 
the next person has to quickly, and again, you can put them on a timer or just let them do it on their own pace, polymorph something that can either attack or escape the thing that had just been polymorphed. So the next response would be, well, I polymorph myself into a wolf to eat the rabbit. Person A would go back, well, I polymorph myself into a falcon to escape the wolf. And you go back and forth until someone either can't think of something or they repeat something. And you can round robin this throughout the table. And this is a good way to kind of get everybody's mind creatively thinking. And it does burn up a good chunk of time as well. One of the things that I like to make sure I do in most of my non-combat encounters and it doesn't have to do this every time but to have a purpose to it so sometimes you do just want to sit down and have fun and just shoot the bull and play a game but I like to make sure that my encounters have a purpose to them too well again you can always make those games as NPC challenges you to set game for information or for money or for an item you need so again you can tie that into a plot hook really easily as well Right, and I'm going to touch on this briefly. I think we're going to actually be doing a full episode on this pretty soon, but downtime activities. You know, there are some things that you want to do on your downtime that can totally be a non-combat encounter. You know, you can totally have things in there where you roll dice to see if you succeed or fail. This is where shopping comes in, and so that would definitely be a social encounter. Um, you know, you craft things using your proficient tools or... Please reference last week's podcast. Yes, please reference last week's podcast where we made magic items. But downtime activities as a total overarching thing is it's a very big thing, and there's a lot of moving parts. It can really bog down a session if you go into the minutia of it, but downtime activities can be a really big, fulfilling part of the game and they can provide so much RP potential and they can provide so much fulfillment in your character, all things told. Right. A lot of this definitely goes into quote, quote story for the game. And then even still downtime activities can be either like something short, or if you do a venture coast, downtime activity can actually take quite a bit of time. And so you can actually use that time to garner, you know, reputation with a faction or with people with an area to find allies, to study research magic. If you're a mage, that kind of thing. So Depending on how your character wants to use that time, I would definitely encourage the characters to explore what their downtime activity options could be. So going in, and I keep going back to Critical Role just because it has such a huge fan base and there's so much of it out there that so many people have watched for downtime activities. Percy, you know, Taliesin's character in Season 1, I don't think Percy would have been nearly as interesting a character if we didn't see him in his workshop like once every four or five episodes when they see him in there tinkering with stuff and making new stuff and that just played so much into the flavor of his character yeah and again it really does come down to how much depth do you want to give your character if you're a murder hobo and you're a murder hobo and that's all you're doing you can play the game that way and that is perfectly acceptable if that's what you're doing and that's your fun and relaxation for the day and you're going to sit down and say i'm going to throw dice at everything till i wait hit deep in blood because that's what i want to do awesome but those memorable moments do come in between and those really are where the characters grow and where the story grows and even more so in between the characters on the table and unless you're playing with just one or two characters you really do want that table dynamic because that's what makes the game night fun it's actually i mean 
if you just wanted to play on your own, you could just hop on a computer and play a solo game, no problem. Right, because like you're saying, the interpersonal relationships between the characters at the table is really what makes a session come to life. And then the last thing that I really wanted to talk about is something that they had in 4th edition that unfortunately didn't make it across into 5th edition, which was skill challenges. A skill challenge is something that should involve multiple people having to make multiple checks. Things like trying to catch an enemy who's trying to escape you, or trying to track down a particular nasty beastie, or the tower is collapsing and you have to get out before you're buried alive, or you have to find this book in the library before the library closes. There should be a time constraint on it, and there should be a consequence for failure and there should be a reward for success yeah so these are different things and these can work in combat and kind of to break out of our scenario here those can be used in combat a little bit as well a really good example of something like this was in the game diablo 3 there you're at a citadel and there's a bunch of fighting stuff going around you but the actual quest or the mission at that point was actually to raise some catapults up so the fortress could use it for defense. So while there's a bunch of stuff, if you deviated from what you're doing and tried to fight, you were less likely to get the items up in time and get the catapults when the defense is set up. So the fighting was actually a distraction versus the goal. Right, and you can do it like that. But typically speaking, you're going to be doing skill challenges in lieu of combat. And that's kind of what you were getting at there, is you can do the combat and fight the mooks, but at the end of the day, if you decide to fight the enemies instead of fulfilling the objectives, you're not going to succeed on your challenge. And you're going to fail overall, even if you kill a whole bunch of them. Exactly. Another really good example of a skill challenge would be like if you're in a dungeon or something and you have to find a secret door so everything might look like it all dead ends but you have to find either a map or a secret passage or something to open a way that isn't necessarily upfront for you to be able to see and so the party can be at a dead end otherwise until they succeed said challenge but the thing that sets a skill challenge apart from a skill check is that it should be a bunch of roles by a bunch of people and in most cases whenever you're doing a skill challenge in order to do the skill challenge, you can only use the skills that you're proficient in. And one variant that I've heard is you use the skills that you're proficient in, but you can't repeat a proficient skill until you've used them all. Oh, wow. That's actually a really good idea. That'd be an interesting session because depending on what the party's going to be proficient in, that could either mesh really well or leave some huge gaping holes. I'd kind of want to see that play out on the table. But I mean, it's not if you have three people who are proficient in arcana all three of them can use arcana right you're not locking it out for the whole party you're just locking it out for your character but you have to use all of your proficient skills before you can double back and use another one of them again right but if you got three people that are proficient in arcana you might only have one person who is proficient in something like investigation and that's where i said depending on the party that could leave some massive skill holes which would be really interesting to see the party kind of See how they compensate their way through. And given that most characters are proficient in three to five skills, depending on your background and your class, and sometimes a race will give you an additional proficiency, bards and rogues would definitely have the easiest time with skill challenges because they have so many additional skills to draw from. That sounds like a really fun scenario. 
So all of the skill challenges that I'm, well, almost all of the skill challenges that I'm familiar with are from the Thursday Night's podcast. Their season one was a fourth edition game, and uh, they did a bunch of skill challenges where they went into epic level characters. They went up to level 30 characters and so they had some absolutely insane skill challenges near the end. Things like have to get 12 successes before three failures and you have to hit a DC 42 to succeed, which in fourth edition you ended up getting, you know, plus 30 plus 40 on your modifiers. So you could That's do insane. that. That was one of the reasons why people didn't like fourth edition was because it was third edition power creep exponentially. Yeah, that's just too much. And I'm glad they drew that back for fifth edition. That being said, I think skill challenges like that would be great to throw a lower level party. It's a non-critical way to get the party interacting and kind of rolling the dice. You can kind of learn how your other players at the table are going to think and play. So yeah, that's definitely something I want to add to my repertoire, particularly for earlier on in my campaigns, I think. But even for mid-game and late-game, Skill challenges can work really well. Going back to Critical Role, after they come out of the Underdark with the Horn of Orcus and they take it to Vasselheim to put it in the vault at the Temple of Bahamut, they bring it in and they put it where it's going to go and then the construct comes to life and Matt Mercer had them go through a skill challenge to get out because... The construct that was coming after him was too powerful for the party to kill. And he made it very clear, you can't kill this thing. This thing is going to eat you alive. You have to get out now. And so that was a skill challenge that he used in the Critical Role game. And I can't remember any others off the top of my head. But yeah, that was one of those instances, kind of like the Resident Evil games where you had to keep going at a certain pace or nemesis would catch you so is that sort of thing where there is a looming threat behind you that is inevitably getting closer and closer and you have to keep continuing to succeed on your skill challenges to escape it i like that now that kind of makes me think of one of the last campaigns i ran that wasn't with you but i kind of did a skill challenge without intending to do a skill challenge i had the party come up on a uh, gnomish town that had been attacked by waves of undead so the gnomes had set up basically a magical minefield of sorts and so they had to try to navigate their way using their investigation checks and perception checks to see how they could navigate without setting off the mines as they moved through this entrapped and mined area which wound up being a lot of fun just because a lot of the mines there were more like color spray and dazzling lights because again they were a lower level party so it was a lot of bright flashy stuff but still it was kind of fun to play so in fourth edition you actually had a table with the save dcs for your different skill checks for your different challenges based on difficulty so if you were a 15th level party a low dc check would be a dc 15 a medium dc check would be a dc 22 and a high check would be a DC 30. And depending on the difficulty of the actual roll, you could actually earn multiple successes based on how you rolled. So if you were doing a skill check that only required a low DC, so going off of this example, if you're doing something where you had to get a 15 to succeed, and you ended up rolling a 23 you would have beaten the medium DC of 22, which means you would have gotten two successes on that skill check. And if you could beat 30, then you would have gotten three, because that's the high DC. And so 
how well you do on your skill checks affects how quickly you can succeed on your skill checks. So you would have things like you have to get eight successes before three failures or 12 successes before three failures. And so by having it set up this way, you didn't actually have to get 12 individual successes. You could get six successes hitting the medium DC, or you could get four successes hitting the high DC and still get your 12 successes. It's a bit clunky. And it's a little clunky, but still, it's kind of fun. I like it. And it requires you to have this chart out in front of you in order to remember what the numbers are. Oh no, a chart. Whatever will I do? I know, right? And again, that takes me back to second edition Advanced D&D, where I really liked everything from walking into a random room to flipping on a light switch to opening a door. You had to consult a chart, and I always thought that was kind of neat and fun. But now, in 5th edition, with the bounded accuracy rules, you can actually set it up to be much simpler than that particular chart. I found an article on criticalhits.com. It's an older article, but it checks out, by uh, John Lemish. I'm probably butchering his name, but he went through and basically converted the entire game mechanic for skill challenges from 4th edition to 5th edition. And the way he set it up was you have easy, medium, and hard skill checks, which are DCs 10, 15, and 20. And the challenge level is broken down by tier, so by level grouping. And the number of challenges of a particular DC vary by how difficult the entire challenge should be and by what tier of game they're at. Right, this is actually a beautifully done chart, and this whole page that got put up is actually really informative and beautifully done. There was a good bit of thought that was put into this, and it seems to balance really nicely. It's not too hard to follow. I'm really liking this page a lot. This is kind of going to go up there with, like, Cobalt Fight Club, probably reference frequently in the future. It's really well done. I would personally do it a little bit differently, but it's good. It is an excellent place to start if you want to start doing skill challenges in your game. So the way that I had come up with just going through the fourth edition rules before I even found this article. You have low, medium, and high difficulty. Low would be seven plus the proficiency bonus. Medium is 10 plus proficiency bonus. High is 13 plus. And that way, the DC for the skill challenge scales with the party. So a low difficulty challenge is still going to be challenging for a high level character. So a low challenge would be a DC 9 for a first level character, and it would be a DC 13 for a 17th to 20th level character with a plus 6 proficiency bonus. And that way you just tie it to whatever their proficiency bonus is. Yeah, and being able to tie things to the proficiency bonus, that seems to be the base way to kind of keep things balanced in the 5th edition, which is actually a really nice way to do it. Because, I mean, when in doubt how to balance something to make sure it's not too strong or too weak, just tie it to your proficiency bonus. And that's pretty much a gold standard. So if you have a character, let's just say, for argument's sake, we have a rogue, they have their 20 decks, and plus 6 proficiency bonus at level 20. So we have a 20th level rogue, so they have a plus 11 on their dexterity-based skill checks. And for whatever reason, they have not put expertise on their acrobatics. Just pulling things together here to make things a little bit simpler. They would get a plus 11 on their skill check. The DC for a hard skill challenge 
skill check would be a 19. So they would still be succeeding on an 8 or higher. There's still a chance of failure, but this is one of those skills that they are very much focused in on. But let's say they also are proficient in, let's just say, Arcana. They're proficient in Arcana, but they've only got a plus 2 to their intelligence. So they're only getting a plus 8 on this. So now they have to roll an 11 or higher to succeed on that. And so it incentivizes playing to your strengths. Yeah, the way I see this kind of is like that professional quarterback, he takes thousands of snaps throughout his career. He might flub one or two a season, but it is possible. And then if he does flub that snap, is he going to try to scramble and run? Is he going to try to throw a quick pass so you can break down to other skills that way too? So you've got that thing. This is what you do. This is what you're known for, but it's still not guaranteed. And if he does have expertise in it, then that's still only going to be a plus 17. Yeah, only a plus 17. There's still a chance for failure there because the DC is 19. So if he rolls a one, he's going to fail. And that's why I was saying, yeah, he could flub that snap. Again, it's not something that's going to happen every day. Absolutely not. But yeah, and he's not going to have that same huge bonus on every single proficient skill, probably. Unless he's a bard or a rogue. But even then, you're probably not going to have a party full of bards and rogues. You're going to have some fighters in there. You're going to have some druids or clerics in there. People who aren't going to have the same skills and they're going to have to change stuff around. And you may end up in a situation where you can't use your biggest, best skill because it doesn't make sense for the situation. You know, you can't just say, well, I'm going to use my acrobatic skill for this particular thing because what if it's one of those things where you're face to face with a guy who stole your wallet and you're trying to get your wallet back from him? How is acrobatics going to do that? Intimidation would work. Athletics would work. Actually, I guess acrobatics could work if you were just trying to... Or a hand to, check, yeah. Pick your pocket slide, back, slide a hand. Slide a hand right. would work. I'm rambling here a little bit, but you want to encourage your players to find inventive ways to use their skills, but you still want to make sure that it makes sense. And that is really the whole, I mean, it's not the whole thing behind these skill checks and things like that, but it is a big part, is really you don't want the session to be the exact same session every time you sit down. You do want to break up that monotony. So again, make them use some of those skills they don't use every day just because they're on the page for a reason. And so for the total number of successes needed, I've got it broken down for a per player at the table. But you can also do it as just a set number, depending on how many people you have at your table. Obviously, if you have eight people at your table, you're not necessarily going to want to do three successes per player. That's 24 successes at the table before you hit three failures. That's just insane or before you hit eight failures as this would be because it's depending on the difficulty of the challenge so a trivial challenge would be uh, a one-to-one ratio one success per player before one failure per player easy is two per one medium is three per one and hard is four per one so like a party of four trivial would be three successes before three failures easy is six before three medium is nine before three hard is 12 before three Right. And as the DM, you can shore these up, you can truncate them, you can make them shorter or longer, depending on what you need for the table. The other really big thing with these skill checks, and this falls on the DM's shoulder squarely, is you got to know your audience. And some days skill checks save the day, some days skill checks are just too much. So again, you can adjust these as needed. Personally, the way I would set this up is all of the skill checks for the skill challenge 
start off at low difficulty. So seven plus your proficiency bonus. And each time you fail a check or after accumulating four successes, the skill DC bumps up one class. So that it does get progressively more difficult as you go along. So that adds in a little bit of strategy because you don't necessarily want to use your biggest and best skills first in this situation. You want to find a way to use your weaker proficient skills first because they have a lower bonus on them and you have a lower DC early on. And as you get further along, you're going to want to have that higher bonus so that you can get a more reliable success. Right. And one of the things that was in the article that I really liked was spellcasters being able to use a spell in lieu of a skill check. Now they had, you know, you could use a spell and blow a spell slot of a certain level or higher to just gain an automatic success on one of your skill checks. What I would actually do personally is they can use one of their spells to grant the next player advantage on their skill check. Depending on what the check is, I think magic should always be an option. You know, if you've got to pick a lock and you're doing a skill check to find a lock or pick a lock or whatever that is, and if mage has knock or something like that, you might have them roll their spell proficiency against it or something like that. But I think that should be a valid option. Oh, I agree. I'm not saying to the exclusion of being able to use it. I'm saying that there may be a situation where they're a caster and they don't have a skill available that really works in this particular scenario, but they know that the next person in line has a skill that'll work. They can find a spell on their spell list that they can use to kind of give them a boost. I would force them to make sure that spell is applicable, um, you know, to the thing. So, like, in that case, if they didn't have a spell they wanted to burn or a spell that fit, but they wanted to help maybe, like, if they cast light or something like that, I would make sure that the spell fit the scenario. I wouldn't let them use Told the Dead for a challenge check where they're trying to search a library or something like that, because I don't think that would quite fit. Right, so that takes me back to, I may have missed this, but there's a minimum spell level required for it to actually be useful in a particular scenario. Right, well, I meant just in general. Okay, so like, again, let's search the library. Create water, you know, a good first level spell, even if you cast it as a third level spell, isn't really going to help you search a library for a book. In most cases, unless the player comes with something way off the wall to where having a bunch of water could help them, but I would definitely make them explain why they're using that spell instead of a spell like Owl's Cunning or something like that. Fox is cunning. Well, it's just enhance ability now anyway. They lump them all together into one spell called enhance ability in 5th edition. So in the article, for the first tier, it has to be a first level spell slot or higher. Second tier has to be a third level spell slot or higher. And then third and fourth tier, it has to be a sixth level spell slot or higher. For simplicity's sake, I would do it by having the spell slot be of the proficiency bonus or higher. So if your proficiency bonus is a plus three, it has to be a third level spell slot or higher. Now if it's a plus five, it's a fifth level spell slot or higher in order for you to be able to use it to succeed automatically on a skill check. You can just forego your turn and use the lower level spell or a race or class ability that recharges on a long rest. You can forego your turn and use that ability to enhance the next person's turn and give them advantage on their check. Right, but what I'm saying is I would make the player 
be able to justify how whatever spell they were going to use would help. Absolutely. The next player, yeah. I'm not saying that they just get to arbitrarily pick a spell and go with it. I'm saying that if they're foregoing their turn to help someone else, they don't have to meet the spell level requirement. I would agree with that, yes. But if they want to be able to use a spell to succeed on one of these skill checks, use a spell in place of a skill check, it has to meet that spell level requirement. Yeah, I would be, I am all for that. I think we were talking around each other at the beginning and we finally, 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 figured, out what, finally figured out what we were actually talking about. I cast Maelstrom. Flamestrike. Ooh, a Maelstrom Flamestrike. That'd be amazing. <laughs> I know, right? Anyway. But yeah, I think we've, uh, I think we've just about beat this into the ground. Hopefully we haven't confused everybody to the point where they don't want to listen to us anymore. So that's been our spiel on non-combat encounters. And after listening to this, you want to do nothing but punch bunnies in the face. Nothing. You're going to say, those guys don't know what they're talking about. I'm going to go murder hobo everything for the next nine years. Or at least until 6th edition. Or at least until 6th edition. So that about does it for non-combat encounters for today. We'd love to hear from some of you guys what some of your favorite non-combat encounters are. I really like puzzle and obstacle encounters. James also likes puzzle encounters, I know. And I really like skill challenges. I haven't run a whole lot of them because I haven't really had a good framework before now to really try doing it. But now that I've gone and sat down and read through the fourth edition rules and try to pull some stuff together and found the article that we're going to be linking in our thread on Thursday. I feel a whole lot more confident about skill challenges and I kind of want to actually take some time and go into putting in some scenarios where we have to run some just to see how it runs in fifth edition. Right. Yeah, definitely. This site kind of laid things out really nice. And it's definitely something I also want to kind of tinker with too. There's a lot of potential in here that set up some fun scenarios. So thank you everyone for joining us as we deteriorated into rambling there near the end. I think next week we might do an episode on the sort of things that you can do as downtime activities go through the DMG and Xanathar's Guide and talk about some of the things that Wizards actually provides us for resources for downtime activities because that is such an overlooked part of the game at a lot of tables. You get back from your adventure and then you say, well, three weeks pass and then you start off on the next adventure and you don't actually take any time to really flesh out what it is that you're doing in that three weeks. Yeah, there's a really a lot of opportunity to grow your character in those points. Again, thank you everyone for joining us for the episode today. Follow us on Twitter at UCT Homebrew or on Instagram or Facebook under Common Taste. I've been doing some roleplay prompts on the Twitter account that I've started cross-posting onto the Instagram and Facebook accounts. I've got a Shakespearean insults page a day calendar, and I've been doing inspired roleplay prompts off of what my insult of the day is. So we'd love to hear what you guys have made off of those prompts. So if you guys come up with something, go ahead and send it to us in a direct message on Twitter. If you can fit it into 140 characters, go ahead and put it as a reply on the post or drop it in an email to us at undercommontaste at gmail.com. And as always, subscribe and comment on our podcasts. Thank you for joining us for the Undercommon Taste podcast. If you enjoyed it, please pass it along to your friends. You can find our past episodes hosted on Podbean and available through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music. 
New episodes go live on Wednesdays, and the write-ups for our homebrewed content are published on Fridays. Join us on Facebook or Instagram at Undercommon Taste, or on Twitter under the handle at UCT Homebrew. Links to all of our content can be found on these platforms. If you have comments, corrections, suggestions, or ideas, please send them to us at undercommontaste at gmail.com. If we like your idea, it may make it into a future episode. Our theme music is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Crowell and used with permission. You can find Mary online at marycrowell.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash drmarycrowell. Again, thank you for listening and stay safe. You'll hear from us again soon.